You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Welcome everyone to the Hayek Program podcast. My name is Chris Coyne and I am the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center and a professor of economics at George Mason University. Today, I am joined uh, with a a wonderful panel of uh, superstar scholars in political economy and public choice, and we are here to discuss Randy Holcomb's new book, Following Their Leaders, Political Preferences and Public Policy, which was recently published by Cambridge University Press. And before we begin our discussion, let me briefly introduce each of our speakers, Uh, and I can't do justice to their accomplishments and scholarship. So I highly recommend that those who are interested check out their respective websites, which has their uh, entire body of research. So our main speaker today, the author of the book is Randy Holcomb. And Randy is uh, DeVoe Moore Professor of Economics at Florida State University. He is a prolific scholar in the areas of public choice, constitutional political economy, public finance, and Austrian economics. And uh, we will be discussing his most recent book in a series of books that he's written on public choice and the political process. Our next guest is Roger Congleton. Roger is BB&T professor of economics at West Virginia University. He is the co-editor of the journal Constitutional Political Economy. And his most recent book is Solving Social Dilemmas, Ethics, Politics, and Prosperity, which was published by Oxford University Press. Bobby Hertzberg is a distinguished senior fellow at the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and a senior research fellow with the program. She is a scholar who works at the intersection of political science, political economy, and economics, and she has uh, contributed uh, scholarship to a, a wide variety of areas, including in the Bloomington tradition. Uh, where she had in the past worked closely with the Ostroms in addition to to her other work. And then finally, we have Mike Munger. Mike is a professor in the Department of Political Science and Department of Economics at Duke University. He is also the director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics program at Duke. And his most recent book is The Sharing Economy, Its Pitfalls and Promises. But that book builds on his prior book, which I wanted to mention, uh, Tomorrow 3.0, Transaction Costs and the Sharing Economy, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And I mentioned that we had a, a all-star lineup, and, and I wasn't uh, exaggerating. I should also mention that all of our panelists today are past presidents of the Public Choice Society. And so for people who are interested in public choice scholarship, I, I cannot ask for a better group of, of, of scholars and, and thinkers to talk about these issues and to, to discuss the open areas in public choice. Uh, so with that, let me turn it over to Randy. And Randy, let me just ask you to discuss some of the core themes and, and points and, and issues that you want to raise with the book, and then we'll go around and, and have our panelists discuss and follow up with the, the points you raise. So Randy, please. 
Thank you very much, Chris. I, I appreciate the introduction and thank you to the panelists. I appreciate your being here to discuss uh, th these ideas also. Uh, you know, we, we assume that citizens and voters have public policy preferences. Uh, and what I'm looking at here is how do they form their public policy preferences? So a lot of public policies, uh, some of them more complex, some more opaque than others. People have preferences on abortion, gun control, tax policy, foreign policy. There tend to be persuasive arguments on all sides. Opinion tends to be divided. So how do citizens and voters form their public policy preferences? And what I'm arguing here is they anchor on a political party, on a politician, on an ideology. They, they accept that anchor and then they derive most of their public policy preferences from those of their anchors. Basically, the political elite tell them what to think and they follow their leaders. Citizens and voters just don't have policy preferences. They get them from somewhere. And I'm saying they get them from the political elite. And there are implications uh, at a couple of different levels on this. Uh, first of all, we sometimes have this romantic notion of democracy where democratic governments are accountable to citizens and voters and democratic uh, governments act in the interest of citizens and voters. But if citizens and voters are getting their policy preferences from the political elite, that really calls into question this romantic notion of democracy. It calls into question the degree to which democratic governments really are accountable to their citizens. So that's, you know, at the conclusion, that's one level I want to think about uh, in applying these ideas. Another level is more at the academic level. So uh, the panelists will be well aware in public choice, social sciences, when we look at, at models of democratic decision making, we tend to assume voters have preferences and that parties and candidates adjust their policy platforms to conform with voter preferences. So I'm arguing really the direction of causation mostly goes the other way, that that candidates and parties develop their platforms, and then they sell them to voters. Voters and citizens adopt the, the, the policy views of the political elite. Like I say, they follow their leaders. Now, one of the foundational ideas here that I try to put across, uh, I, I base these arguments to begin with on the difference between instrumental and expressive choices. Uh, this is an idea that's fairly well known already in public choice, but uh, instrumental choices are choices where you make a choice and it affects the outcome you get. Expressive choices, you make a choice and it has no effect on the outcome. So, for example, you go into a restaurant, you look at the menu, you choose the salad rather than the pizza. You get the salad. That's an instrumental choice. Uh, on the other hand, you go into the voting booth, you vote for candidate A over candidate B, the same person is elected no matter who you choose. So that's an expressive choice. You make a choice, but it has no impact on the outcome. I mean, think about it. In the last presidential election, 2020, if you had voted for President Biden, who would be president today? Biden. If you'd voted for Donald Trump, who would be president today? Biden. And if you didn't vote at all, who would be president today? Biden. Okay, so that, that's an expressive choice. You go into the voting booth, you make a choice, 
but it doesn't have any impact on the outcome. So one result of that is that people's expressive choices are not necessarily going to be the choices they would make if the choice were theirs alone. The choices they express for these expressive choices can be different from their instrumental choices. Let me give you a couple of examples to think about. Uh, one of them, the panelists will be familiar with Gordon Tullock's article, Charity of the Uncharitable. You know, basically, he's talking about expressive choices. He gives an example of a, an uncharitable person. He's not giving money to charity because any money you give to charity, less that you have for yourself. But he feels a little bit bad about that. You know, I, I ought to be charitable, but I just want to keep my money for myself. Okay. But then he goes into the voting booth and he has the option of voting for a candidate who advocates redistribution to the poor. And so he casts that vote. He feels like it's a charitable vote. Hey, I'm voting for redistribution. He gets a good feeling about casting that charitable vote, but it costs him nothing because the outcome of the election is going to be the same regardless of, of who he votes for. Uh, so people can make expressive choices that are different from the choices they would make if the choice were theirs alone. Another interesting example I'll bring up, it's a little bit dated, but I think it's a, a really interesting example of what I would argue is an expressive choice. Back in 1998, uh, so it's a little bit dated, in 1998, Jesse Ventura was elected governor of Minnesota. Very interesting because he ran as a third party candidate. Now, for people who don't know, Jesse Ventura was a professional wrestler. He had a lot of name recognition because of his, his, his profession. And, uh, the Republicans put up a guy named Norm Coleman. The D Democrats put up Hubert Humphrey III as their candidate. Neither the Democrats or Republicans are really overly fond of the candidates the parties, uh, had on the ballot. So you imagine a voter going into the, the voting booth there, Republicans looking at the ballot thinking, not really crazy about Norm Coleman. But I'm sure not going to vote for the Democrat. There's Jesse Ventura. I'll cast my protest vote for Jesse Ventura. <laughs> you know, and the Democrats the same way. I'm not all that fond of Hubert Humphrey, but I'm sure not going to vote for the Republican. There's Jesse Ventura. I'll cast my, my protest vote for Jesse Ventura. And, and here's my conjecture on that, that if after people are leaving the polling place, like you grab a Jesse Ventura voter and you say, you know, normally we select the, the, the governor based on who gets the most votes. But in this case, we're doing the election differently. You know, instead of, uh, of counting up all the votes, we're picking one voter at random who gets to choose the governor. And we've chosen you. And my conjecture is any Jesse Ventura, almost every Jesse Ventura voter that you would pick uh, would, would not pick Jesse Ventura if the choice were that voter's choice uh, alone. With expressive voting, people will vote for, alter for alternatives that make them feel good, not necessarily for the alternatives they would choose if the choice were theirs alone. Now, a well-established idea in public choice is this notion of voters being rationally ignorant. You know, you're rationally ignorant because your choice isn't going to determine the outcome of an election. Okay. Now, expressive voting rests on that same foundation as rational ignorance. If people are rationally ignorant because they know their vote won't affect an election outcome, they also know their vote is purely expressive. So as a result, it ought to be easier to influence 
uh, people's political views than the, the choices that they make that are instrumental choices. Uh, but there's a whole advertising industry that's designed uh, to affect mostly people's instrumental choices. I mean, think about it. Uh, if people can be influenced uh, to change their views about what laundry detergent they should use or what automobile that they should drive, Surely they would be more easily influenced to change their political preferences, uh, which which are purely expressive, which have no no uh, uh, instrumental impact. So this idea of expressive voting is pretty well established in the in the public choice uh, literature. Uh, and and what I try to contribute in this book is that literature on expressive voting has made the case that people vote expressively, but hasn't really looked in detail at how are those expressive preferences determined. So I look at some some factors to you know, try to figure out, okay, people vote expressively. How are those expressive preferences determined? Uh, and there are a lot of factors, and I go through and, and, and analyze a lot in the social sciences literature, thinking about factors. I mean, one is People like to have a feeling of belonging. Uh, you know, people tend to to hold political preferences that are similar to their family's preferences. If you grew up in a Republican household, you're more likely to be Republican. Um, the friends, the people they associate with, uh, you tend to adopt the, the political preferences of those people. Uh, and there may be an element of peer pressure in there, too. I mean, if you're in with a group of people, uh, you're sort of talking about political issues and, and so forth. I mean, you can argue with, with your peers. Uh, that might be uncomfortable. And it also might make you feel like you're not as much a member of the group. Or you can be persuaded by them, you know, join with your friends. Uh, and again, there's no instrumental cost of doing so. You can change your political preferences and the outcome is going to be the same. Uh, I talk a little bit about the endowment effect. Endowment effect, you, you just value things more because you consider that, that they're your own. And I think as much as goods, it also applies to people's uh, opinions. You know, these are my, my political views. I value them because they're mine. I'm going to be resistant to change. As, as far as adopting all of those derivative preferences, all of the preferences of the person you're anchoring on or the party you're anchoring on, it reduces cognitive dissonance. I mean, you show up at the, at the voting booth and you're thinking, you know, I really like this candidate's views on this issue and that issue, but not so much on these other issues. I'm going to vote for the candidate. You might not feel all that good doing that. You agree with some things, you disagree with others. But if you buy the whole platform, hook, line and sinker, you cast your vote, you feel good about it. It reduces cognitive dissonance. There also might be an element of the bandwagon effect here. People like to vote for winners. Uh, and so as a result, in political campaigns, every candidate claims to be ahead in the polls. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You know, you see an election, one candidate running against another. Both of them are saying they're ahead in the polls. Well, people like to vote for a winner. So you want to try to convince, hey, you know, cast your vote for me. I'm, I'm a winner. And then there's political advertising and mass media. And because People's expressive preferences, you're voting for something that makes you feel good, not necessarily what you would choose if the choice were theirs alone. It's a feel good thing. Uh, and political advertising works that same way. If you look at political ads, very short on any solid content, it's all feel good stuff. I mean, political ads essentially say, not quite this bluntly, but political ads say, vote for me and you'll feel good. 
Right. And any negative advertising the same way. Uh, you know, people claim to hate negative ads. Looks like they're effective and, and candidates run them. And, and what's the, what's the message in a negative ad? If you vote for my opponent, you're going to feel bad. All right. So political advertising, I discussed some other factors, but uh, I'll, I'll skip over some of that. You know, uh, the, the way that, that people form their policy preferences, they anchor on a politician, a party, or an ideology, and then all of their policy views are derivative of their anchor. Uh, they derive their policy preferences from those of the political elite from, from their anchor. They follow their leaders. Anchor preferences define uh, people's political identities. They define how people see themselves, how they want others to see them. Uh, and then they derive most of their policy preferences from their anchors. So when you look at people's policy preferences on issue after issue after issue, sometimes, you know, the way we might think about this is, is somebody saying, you know, on the abortion issue, I'm pro-choice. Uh, I favor stricter gun control. I think the rich are not paying their fair share of taxes. That's what Democrats think. Therefore, I'm a Democrat. What I'm saying is the direction of causation goes the other way. You anchor on the, uh, that you're a Democrat. Hey, I'm a Democrat. Therefore, I'm pro-choice on the abortion issue. I favor stricter gun control. I want more progressive taxes. Uh, that your, your policy preferences are derived from your anchors. I mean, it's kind of interesting that there's such a close correlation uh, on political views across all, the, all of these issues. Now, what's the connection, if we think about it, what's the connection between people's views on abortion and their views on the progressivity of the tax system? It seems like those issues really don't have that much to do with each other, right? But if you tell me what somebody's views are on the progressivity of the tax system, you know, you think the rich are paying their fair share? You think we ought to have more progressive taxes? You tell me what somebody's views are, and I'll give you a pretty good prediction about what their views are on the abortion issue. And why? Well, it's because their preferences are derivative of their, uh, of their anchors. Uh, policy preferences are expressive. So there's no instrumental cost in, in preferring bad policies. Policy issues a lot of times tend to be complex. So people defer to their, their anchors as experts. And when you adopt all those policy preferences of your anchors, it reduces cognitive dissonance. It's easier for you, uh, for you to cast your vote and feel good uh, about casting that vote. Now, when I talk about this, you know, I tell people, hey, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about other people, right? Because you're thinking, no, that's not how I form my policy preferences. You know, I'm rational. I think through the issues. Yeah, I know. Okay, so you do. But think about the Trump supporters. You know, oh, yeah, like they're just buying his lines, hook, line and sinker and go at the other end. Think about the people who are Bernie Sanders supporters. Yes. I mean, they're just buying what he says. They're not really thinking, thinking critically. I mean, doesn't it seem like that's how how people are adopting their policy preferences? So people have a choice of anchors. You could choose one anchor or another anchor. But once they do that. Most of their policy preferences then are derivative of their anchors. They accept the policy preferences of, of the political elite. They follow their leaders. So if I think about uh, implications 
on this. Uh, for us academics here on the panel, you know, first of all, you know, I'll, I'll uh, go to bat against uh, some of these voting models, you know, where we assume voters have preferences and then candidates and, and parties adjust their platforms to voter preferences. So I'm saying, no, that goes the, that goes the other way. That candidates and parties adopt political platforms and voters and citizens, they follow their leaders. They pick up the policy preferences that are sold to them by the political elite. And this is especially um, applicable to models of social choice. So if you look at social choice, I mean, the basic idea there is we look at the policy preference. We look at the preferences, the preference rankings that individuals have, and we try to figure out how can we aggregate those preferences so that the aggregate choice best represents the underlying preferences of the individuals who are making their individual choices. But if those preferences that we see are expressive choices, not instrumental choices, that really pulls the rug out of the that whole area of social choice. So, when we look at the way government operates, we look at collective decision making, uh, I think public choice models of rent seeking, of regulatory capture, of interest group politics, they're much more descriptive of the political process than some of these voting models, the models of democratic choice that we tend to use. And those models, those the rent seeking models, regulatory capture, I mean, those are models where it's the political elite that's driving the political process and largely imposing costs on the masses. So there are implications there for academic models, for the way that we study and analyze the public sector and political decision making. And stepping back to larger issues, there are implications for democratic governments. Democratic governments are less accountable to their citizens than this romantic notion of democracy would lead people to believe. Democratic oversight is not an effective constraint on the abuse of power of the, by the public elite because citizens and voters adopt the political preferences of the political elite. So let me wrap up my comments there, and I will be very interested to hear what the commentators have to say. Thank you very much, Randy. I appreciate it. Roger Congleton, please. First, uh, let me start with the positive uh, uh, things, the things that I, th I think are kind of very neat about the book. Uh, first, it's a really easy read. There are very few uh, academic books that you could kind of grab it at eight, nine o'clock at night and read through the whole thing uh, and, and keep you up until 1 a.m. and you're, you're done. Okay. Usually the books will just put you to sleep right away. So, so in that sense, it's a very readable project. And it's also a very thought-provoking book, even if you disagree with it, which is also a, a value-added reading. Uh, that is, if you, if, you, if you come away from a book with a bunch of questions, and a, and a kind of better grasp of where you actually are uh, afterwards, uh, regardless of whether that's because you disagree with everything in the book that's been said, or agree with some and not others and so forth, or just by, by hook, line, and sinker, which is sort of consistent with Randy's hypothesis, by the way, but I suspect it's not going to be as true of the readers uh, as he hopes. You still walk away with value added, and so the book does have some nice value added. Second, although I don't care a lot for the vocabulary used, you know, the elites, masses, anchors, and so forth. I generally agree that preferences are, in a sense, endogenous at the margin, a product of lifelong learning and experience, and that political parties and politicians can, to some degree, influence to the policy preferences of voters, at least at the margin. Uh, more on that later. Third, the book includes uh, many sub-themes, as well as the overarching one, and many of these are really nicely done. So the discussion of why voting is expressive is very nice and sharp. 
The discussion about divisiveness, uh, which Randy didn't mention, uh, of politics is also very nice. Uh, being on the winning side of politics can be important as far as one's future income or longevity is concerned, although perhaps less true of liberal democracies and autocracies. There certainly are cases where, where that's, uh, that's the condition that most people face. Of course, the divisiveness of policies or policy decisions depend to some extent on the type of policy being discussed and whether policies are constrained by a generality rule or not. Uh, many Western democracies are pretty well constrained by generality rules. And regarding expressive voting, I, I, have, I have had arguments with people who, had, uh, who uh, talk about expressive voting for about 30 years, I think. And so I think it, you can make a pretty clear case that voting is expressive if people are aware of um, you know, some of the ideas from public choice. On the other hand, what they're going to express is kind of important. So if the reason you vote is you want to express your support for a policy that you, uh, you generally think is a good policy, then your expressive vote looks just like an instrumental vote. And to assume that it's instrumental, it's not uh, crazy. On the other hand, if you vote because um, of some kind of moral intuition about what a good policy or good society looks like, uh, maybe uh, to use Randy's uh, example, the pizza and salad, maybe you would have been better off with the salad but chose the pizza because you thought, well, gee, that's going to really taste good tonight. But if I were in my true long run self, I would want to have the salad. Uh, maybe when you get to the voting booth, you vote for the salad instead of the pizza. That could be a good thing. Uh, so there are a lot of scenarios where expressive voting actually improves the quality of politics rather than worsens it. Uh, and uh, the case has not really been made uh, that, uh, that expressive voting necessarily worsens uh, political outcomes. So now onto the, the bigger meat, uh, the main theme of the paper that we are all sheep, basically, as the picture on the cover indicates. Uh, I'm not sure whether Randy got to pick it or not, but it's really quite a, a, a nice summary of the book. Here, there's a lot to disagree with. And, and, and in fact, the book itself kind of uh, disagrees with itself half the time. That is, it, uh, the book uh, talks about longer-term uh, influences on anchors, such as the Enlightenment scholars uh, that uh, help to uh, propel the modern world, or at least get it off in that direction. And, of course, if they actually are influencing our anchors, and the anchors are not really very uh, flexible, okay? You know, they have a 300-year lag or something like that. Uh, he also talks about families and so forth, as he did in his talk, and if, to the extent that families influence the kind of political views that you develop or, or take to be true, you know, then what you, how you think when you're 25 will influence how you think when you're 55. Okay, and so at the margin, politicians 30 years later aren't going to have much of an effect on the way you think. So there's a sense in which those parts of the book suggest that contemporary politicians do not have very much influence over the way people actually think about policies on a day-to-day -day basis. If they have an effect, it's a cumulative effect that kind of builds up over decades uh, and, and may persuade people to change their minds about one kind of policy or another policy. What politicians can influence, I think, at the margin uh, more than preferences is expectations. Uh, you know, to the extent that they have some expertise in an area or can pretend to have expertise in an area, they can kind of provide facts or kind of uh, at least storylines that suggest that you should expect bad outcomes from policy X rather than the good ones you currently believe. And therefore, you might change your mind, even though your policy preferences per se did not change. Your expectations of consequences do change, and that might change the way you vote. Uh, I don't know how common that uh, scenario is, but one would be an, ex an example might be the uh, switch in, in, the, uh, in the green movement as the global warming uh, ideas got to be as, uh, taken seriously in the early 90s. 
which kind of flipped over a huge range of uh, green policy type preferences. Uh, as, as, as counterexamples to these, uh, you know, idea, this idea that people are never, are, are in a sense kind of puppets, you can, th- you can think of uh, Mayor Bloomberg's campaign for president a, f- a few years back, uh, where he spent about a billion dollars trying to uh, persuade people to adopt his positions. And he didn't win a single primary as a consequence, even though he outspent the entire field by about a factor of two. Uh, and last, I guess I'll say um, the book confuses to some extent the difference between preferences and delegation. To say I vote in favor of candidate X because I agree with him or her is different from saying I vote in favor of X because I trust him or her to make the quote unquote right decisions for me uh, when he, he or she is behind closed doors and, and that is not being closely monitored. So if you come to that conclusion about a party or a person, you don't necessarily uh, adopt all their policy positions. You just trust them in some sense to make policy decisions that on average are going to make you better off. Uh, and that, that kind of uh, voting strategy is perfectly consistent with uh, economizing information, but still voting more or less instrumentally. So I guess the bottom line for me is, uh, although I do I disagree with the main theme, uh, theme and don't think he really did, uh, Randy did, uh, uh, did manage to uh, establish that as a kind of a true description of the way voters behave uh, as, as virtually puppet, puppets of the last speech they heard. I still think the book is well worth reading. It, 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 uh, it does try to develop a theory of, of voter ideas about uh, politics. Uh, I don't find that theory convincing as a short-run theory, but as a long-run theory, it has some, some merit, I think. And it's certainly well worth an evening or two to read and think about because it raises a lot of interesting questions, even if in the end you wind up disagreeing with uh, Randy's answers. Thanks. All right, Roger. Thank you very much. Uh, Bobby Hertzberg, please. Thanks. And uh, thanks for this uh, opportunity and for writing the book, Randy. I really appreciated having the opportunity to read it and to think about it. And uh, I, too, was very impressed at how sort of conversationally you put a lot of public choice, a lot of work on these kinds of issues together in one volume, touching on, I think, virtually every aspect uh, that has come up over the, my time with public choice, which is quite a long time, uh, as it turns out. And so that alone in 200 pages is, I think, an incredibly impressive feat. And I found myself nodding away at, yes, these are the things that would happen. Yes, these are the things that have shaped this. So I highly recommend, um, especially the new student uh, to these areas to pick this up and uh, to go to some of the footnotes, to look at some of the debates that have taken place over time about um, what is it that drives uh, voting when, in fact, your vote is not instrumental in terms of impacting the outcome. What is it that still drives people to the polls? And while it used to be back in the you know, 40 years ago when we, people were uh, debating this heavily uh, to try and account for it in rational choice theory, the argument was, well, people, it's that feel-good component, that it makes them feel good to go to vote, which seemed like a throwaway category, almost an error term and not a very helpful explanation. So you give a lot more meat to that logic of expressive voting and what one actually gains by 
getting to support the team. Um, and I liked the team analogy, uh, that whole logic that you uh, developed through that is we're going to support our team. But what I thought was interesting was I was thinking about it as a team is we also yell at the people a lot that don't seem to be doing what the team needs at any given point. So I'm thinking about all the times that my husband this year is a huge Cardinal fan. Mike will appreciate this. Um, as a huge Cardinal fan, has been cursing the management of the Cardinals and the pitching. Yes, exactly. In any case, with the Cardinals, uh, he is capable of distinguishing between being a lifelong Cardinal fan and the inadequacies of the person or the representative that is bringing those Cardinals to them and the disaster that they are this season. And so I think that's also the case in politics, that yes, we follow our leaders, but we also kick our leaders and they often become something we push back uh, significantly against. And so one of the things I kept asking myself as I was going through this is, when does this change? When do we change our expressive votes, uh, change the way in which we interact expressively to alter the kinds of people who are the elite we're listening to? And, you know, Roger has already noted that this lifelong sort of development of our preferences versus the more short-term kinds of things. And I was thinking about the most recent election that's coming up in terms of presidential elections in the United States and thinking, first of all, being depressed about that, but uh, quite apart from that component, the idea that no one, I think, wants these to be the leaders they want to follow, and yet they are following these leaders. So what does it say when expression is done with your nose held, not about policies, but about the actual leaders that are supposed to be the glue holding it together? In some ways, even strong Trump voters don't care for all of Trump. You see this with a lot of Christian voters and others that seem to be confounded on how can you support Donald Trump. And likewise, Biden Many Democrats recognizing this is not the sort of banner bearer they would like to be carrying their their party's sort of platform. And so to some extent, one wants to ask, when is it that expression becomes more automated and not really expressive? So not satisfying that I voted for the Democrats, or I voted for uh, the Republicans. And I liked your Jesse Ventura and bringing that up because that is one of those where, but I would disagree with you on what someone would do. I think if you told someone that they could, when they are peeved at their core leaders, they're more likely, many Perot voters, for example, I in the election with uh, Bush, the whole idea of, well, can we switch these around? Are we going to get a very different kind of outcome if I vote for it? And maybe that middle of the road candidate doesn't get it because they don't think that they can be expressive enough to actually create the kind of separation that is necessary in this modern um, in this modern arena. So I like that sometimes looking at, well, 
what are the corner points or when do we see change as a way of trying to understand why we adhere to things in the first place? And then uh, additionally, I need to bring in a little bit of Ostromian things. Uh, This is very presidential, national level in its analysis in the sense that we really are such a huge part. The electorate is so huge that my only hope is to be expressive because I simply cannot even come close to thinking I'm going to have any impact on what actually happens. But a lot of opportunities in politics and a lot of governing take place at much smaller levels where, in fact, we can have a more impactful effect on the outcome. And so why don't we see uh, people who might want to have that kind of impact flowing to those? And who do we see flowing to those arenas as opposed to using this kind of expressive conduct to try and change things at the national level? Why do we see so much vote more voting at the national level than we see at local level when that instrumental component is so much weaker in that context. And our choices even uh, during uh, primaries seem to be reduced. So that's another question I think that in teasing out this difference between expressive and instrumental and uh, the degree to which I perceive that uh, becomes a real part of the argument that I think you could uh, develop even further than you have in this in this uh, relatively short treatment. Other things I wanted to raise that came up, of course, the issue of institutions, and you do pick that up, especially with regard to the founding and federalism and some of the institutional um, arrangements that were put into, you know, check and balance, uh, that this institutional logic also helps to explain. And of course, the two-party and nature of our electoral system emerges as a result of those institutional rules and thus give us less potential for instrumental rather than expressive kinds of uh, treatments. So a bit more on not just how those types of institutions that provide checks between elites, but also the degree to which that has diluted uh, the notion of any kind of uh, popular impact on the outcomes of uh, elections, I think, again, would be real grist for the mill in terms of taking this idea further and whether people are actually interested in participating in that. And one of the last things I was thinking about with regard to this is the degree to which we're seeing these sort of localized protests come out, whether it's BLM or parents at school board meetings, et cetera, we're starting to see expressive turn into instrumental. And again, I think that would be a really interesting area to try to tease out the degree to which this is completely controlled by elites versus new elites emerging sort of outside of the institutional structure and outside of the system. And what has, what has allowed that uh, to happen? And, you know, part of the argument undoubtedly is the nature of new communications and technology and the idea that we can now sort of open things up and, and have broader based communication make a lot of these more localized efforts 
uh, to try and take on some of these issues uh, in a way that we couldn't see as much with the public before and thus much more elite dependence. Um, what is the nature of the elites that are operate in that arena as opposed to the uh, more traditional sort of public choice elites that we see in terms of um, incumbency and electoral types of politics and the, and the type of uh, more structured nature of our political parties, et cetera. And then just, is there no hope? I, I, I only got to on page, I think it's on page 196 or something. It's like the last couple of pages of the book. You get this, well, maybe there's hope uh, kind of statement. And I think that that was a mistake. I think along the way, giving uh, public choice is always known as being the sort of darker uh cousin you don't want to bring to Thanksgiving dinner, it, you know, it, it could be more hopeful. And I think a, a little bit of a, a input from folks like the Ostroms and others who operate in the arena of perhaps we could find our instrumental effects in other arenas uh, participating in homeowners associations, being the old biddy on the corner, doing a variety of things, maybe even the protest movements. I was talking about the parents at the uh, PTA meetings or school board meetings. These are ways in which perhaps we've substituted what may at one point have been the more Tocquevillian uh, participation in politics. Now, perhaps we've moved to that being just an expressive arena and our real interaction in terms of self-governing, in terms of getting things done, may have shifted more to civil society or other arenas uh, where we're satisfying that itch and maybe not uh, seeing politics as uh, the answer to it. And so uh, with that, I think I've said enough. So um, I'll leave it there. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Bobby. Mike Munger, please. Well, I had not expected to be the most positive of the three commentators, but here we are. I thought this was terrific. There are, in the history of social choice, I come from a different tradition of public choice. I am not from the Virginia school. I'm much more from the Rochester Caltech school. There's a distinction in that kind of social choice between two kinds of elections, committee elections and mass elections. And much of the work in spatial theory was on committee elections, that is relatively small groups, 100% turnout, and everyone is well informed about the consequences of their choices. Mass elections comes through Anthony Downs, and then it was elaborated through a series of papers, Peter Ordeshuk famously in 1969 said, it seems that there are two separate spaces. One is the n-dimensional policy space where we think of politics as cashing out. And the other is what Ordeshuk called the basic space, the space of values in which people actually reason and argue. It's rare to, sometimes they'll argue about specific line items, but most of the time they argue about basic values. And Downs took a particular perspective. What Downs said was that voters, and he's an economist, so that makes sense. We start with fixed exogenous preferences in the n-dimensional policy space. And then ideologies are a means of economizing on the cost of gathering information. So it's a shortcut. It's a heuristic. But it doesn't actually mean anything. We don't have much emotional attachment to these ideologies. What we actually care about is the n-dimensional policy space. Now, that's fine. That's an argument. 
And it's perhaps not surprising that economists would think in those terms because we would like for preferences to be fixed and exogenous because of the Becker rule, not because we think preferences always are fixed, but because of the discipline it imposes. If the first thing that you get to do anytime you see a change is to say, well, preferences must have changed, that's too easy. You should stick with changes of the parameters of the model before you look at changes in the underlying assumptions. But that's not a fixed rule. It might just be that sometimes there are preference changes. And if there are, where do they come from? So I am blessed to follow both Roger and Bobby, because I do think that if you want to talk about long-term people's basic identity, maybe those are relatively fixed. But if you're trying to explain changes, if you're trying to explain the election and the follow-up to Donald Trump, then I think there's a great deal here that is quite useful. So in elaborating the Downsian model, first Hinnick and Pollard, and then I in a book with Mel Hinnick that was published in 1994, said that we will look at the way that the ideological space is imposed on the n-dimensional policy space, and that will constrain voters because the two parties create a line in an n-dimensional space, and that's the set of alternatives that are available to me. So there's a political constraint that I can only choose what the parties offer. But my preferences still live in the n-dimensional policy space. Now, that book has more than a thousand citations. It is one of the most cited things that I've ever written. I actually think it's a really cool model, and in mathematical terms, it's great. I have decided in the last five years or so it's wrong, and after reading Randy's book, I think that his explanation is correct. We need to reverse the direction of causation. It is true that what happens in the n-dimensional policy space is important, but voters live in a value space that is largely created by elite rhetoric, by the political culture. So it doesn't have to be specifically that... And Roger gave the sort of de minimis, I think this is right, having a candidate run ads is not the same thing. But the political culture is endogenous to the, the kind of political rhetoric that is being used and is accepted as this is what this election is about. Candidates are always saying, this is what this election is about. If I win that battle, then I am telling voters what to believe about the n-dimensional policy space. So that's the basic space that Peter Ortyshuk was talking about. So if, as Professor Holcomb is suggesting here, and I think rightly, then voters are attracted to candidates or parties for complex reasons, and then they adopt or rationalize the policies that are embraced by those ideological choices. So more specifically, first, I think this book is a very good treatment of expressive voting, but the kind of expressive voting that I see all around me is maybe it's a little bit different than what it was that Roger was criticizing. So here at Duke, there is a kind of brigadoon. So instead of once every hundred years, a village shows up for three nights, once a year, a village shows up for two weeks. It's called Krzyzewskiville. And the poor kids live outside in tents, and it's really quite cold. And what they're, what they're doing is they want to be able to go inside a building Cameron Indoor Stadium, and watch a basketball game between Duke and UNC. And what they want to do when they get inside that building is express their support for good against evil, the satanic UNC team. They want What they want to do is they want to stand up and say, yay, with one voice. 
They do not expect that saying yay influences the outcome, but they will pay great cost in order to express that solidarity with good against evil. That's a really basic human impulse. And so when you think of expressive voting as starting with those terms, there, there's a a, a simple way that it actually does me a lot of good to be able to express my solidarity with what other people around me think is good. So economists have made elaborate and increasingly complex arguments about justifying voting as being rational. It can just be an expressive act. We live under the outcomes that are produced by the aggregate process, but there's no necessary connection. So A, express solidarity with good and join with like-minded people in doing so. B, live with the outcomes that are produced by the aggregate process. There's no connection between A and B. What I do to vote has no impact on the set of rules that we end up living with that comes out of the aggregate process. So Tom Scheller and I had a piece on prohibition, and basically we proposed the same test that Randy did, looking at polls. Now, the polls aren't great, but looking at polls, a substantial number of people who voted for prohibition, if you had asked them on their way to the poll, we've decided to do this differently this year. We're not actually taking a vote. You personally get to decide whether there's going to be prohibition or not. They just said, oh, hell no. They assumed prohibition was not going to pass, and so they were going to go and make themselves feel good. And if they were men, make their spouses feel good by saying, I'm against demon rum. And she'll say, oh, good, you're the man I thought I married. So the, the that paper was in public choice. I think Brexit, a lot of people, if you had asked, uh, they didn't think Brexit was going to pass. They were free to vote for it knowing as a protest. They're pissed off. Donald Trump. It doesn't, you don't think you have to go back to Jesse Ventura. A fair number of the people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 thought there was no way in hell he was going to win, but they thought Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate, and they were right. She was. They were. She was just even worse than they expected. So that's all fine. So far, all I've talked about is the expressive part. Randy's contribution, the thing that makes this actually important, is that he then has an explanation for what happened after the election. A number of people who had voted for Trump actually seemed to have changed their expressed views in the n-dimensional policy space. The, the claims about immigration, they became much more extreme on immigration. They became much more opposed to free trade. And, well, my, my friend Brink Lindsay, who some, who some of you may know, who used to work for Cato, Brink Lindsay was a big anti-Trump guy. He actually has moved really far to the left after Trump was elected because he has adopted the positions of the anti-Trump people. If you look, there have actually been changes. So what I think is important here is not the explication of the expressive voting, which I just, I just think is straightforwardly true, at the margin during changes. Not overall, but at the margin during changes. The important thing here is to explain the changes that happen after maybe an unexpected event where people actually rearrange their policy preferences as a result. So... What Holcomb is saying is something deeper. Many traditional Republicans and many working class Democrats actually became Trump supporters, changing their reported views. Because in by 2017, if you look by 2020, they're responding to survey questions about their preferences that make it sound like they prefer Trump. But the direction of causation is the other way. Since they prefer Trump, they have adopted those rules. So I don't think that's used. This is sort of a Phillips curve relationship. It's not manipulable in equilibrium. But when there are changes, 
This is the way the changes cash out. Most of the time, if we spend money, it has no impact and people stick. And there's no distinction between these two directions of causation. So the direction of causation only matters when there's a change. But I think Randy is really on to something. And I was pleased to get a chance to read this book and comment on it. So thank you. Thank you, Mike, very much. Randy, do you want to respond to the points raised? Yeah, let me make some comments here, Chris. Uh, first of all, thank all the three of you for your for your comments. I really appreciate them. Uh, and I don't disagree with anything that any of you said. Uh, I did make some notes here. And so um, partly I'm responding to the comments, but, oh, here's something I thought as you were speaking. Uh, so uh, first of all, Roger, the cover was my choice in the book. So, uh, so yeah, I picked those sheep. And I think it's pretty descriptive. One thing, Roger, you, you mentioned was, uh, was this, these enlightenment ideas, which, you know, I, I think enlightenment ideas cut two ways. I mean, really, uh, up until recently, people had the idea, you know, there's a ruling class, those people make the rules, they tell people uh, what they can and can't do, and everybody else is subjects of the government, and their obligation is to abide by the, the rules of the elite. And enlightenment ideas were, were pretty influential. Rather than people being the, uh, serving their governments, government should serve the people. And so that, that put a lot of constraint, just the adoption of those ideas put a lot of constraints on the ruling class, just that change in, in ideology. But it also had another effect in that if we accept that notion of democracy, and I think we, we see it really strongly in some enlightenment writers, I guess one, one place especially strongly is in uh, Rousseau's ideas of a social contract that basically that uh, with democratic governments make decisions uh, that they're embodying the general will, the will of the people. And so those enlightenment ideas, on the one hand, they're a challenge to the political elite. But on the other hand, this notion that democratic governments act in the interests of, they're accountable to the people, those enlightenment ideas further legitimize democratic government. You know, so why is it that George W. Bush was able to in invade Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, it's because he was the president. People chose him and it was, uh, you know, it was his choice to do that as opposed to some unilateral choice. No, that's the choice of, of the people, according to those enlightenment ideas. So I think the enlightenment ideas uh, cut cut two ways. And uh, Roger, you also made an interesting comment about expectations and how one of the things that the political elite influences expectations. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I guess when you were saying that, I was thinking about FDR's administration during the Great Depression. So here the guy gets elected term after term after term, you know, and he's telling people, uh, you know, we're going to do policies to pull the economy out of the depression. The policies never worked. The economy never came out of the depression. But nevertheless, you know, he was able to sell these expectations. He was able to sell sell these uh, these good feelings. And uh, Bobby, uh, uh, you know, asked the question: You know, when do we if we change our expressive preferences? When might we change our expectations? And that's, I mean, one interesting thing about about government is, you know, we have one government. Uh, we see what happened as a result of the political elite's choices, but what we don't see is what would have happened 
otherwise. And so, you know, going back and thinking about the FDR example, uh, you know, so FDR comes in, he said, I've got all these solutions for the depression, but the economy stays in the depression, the solutions don't work. And so it's easier for a critic to say, well, look, you know, uh, I mean, what he did is counterproductive. It didn't work. The economy never came out of the depression. But the FDR supporters say, yeah, but things would have been a lot worse if it hadn't been for, for his policies. And we don't know. You know, it's a counterfactual. You know, if you eat at a bad restaurant, you know you had a bad meal and you can choose another one. But if you're judging FDR's uh, economic policies, we can see what happened, but we can't see what happened if some other policy had been enacted. And again, Bobby was talking about expressing opposition. And I think, you know, that's true. I mean, a lot, a lot of expressive voting, uh, is in opposition. And my own feeling, you know, see how, uh, what other people think about this, but in the 2020 presidential election, my view is nobody voted for Biden. Some people voted for Trump and other people voted against Trump, but, but uh, very few people were, were Biden supporters. You know, it was, a, you know, expressing support for Trump, expressing uh, opposition to Trump. And, uh, and Bobby, you, you mentioned the uh, uh, Ross Perot. And I'll just say to me, he seemed like a lot more credible candidate than Jesse Ventura. Uh, I mean, he actually seemed to have some ideas. You know, and all Jesse Ventura, a uh, handsome guy and a good wrestler. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Perot voters really did like Perot as their uh, as their first choice. And, and and I think you know, Bobby, you were talking about uh, about the local level. And on the one hand, it seems to me these arguments still apply at the local level. I mean, I'm thinking about myself as a I'm, I'm in a, a a local community has uh, under two hundred thousand residents, so a relatively small group. But I don't have any influence. I don't have any say on what goes on. My vote's not going to count in the election. So, so I, I don't know about that. But the one thing about local governments is there you do have a comparison. It's more like the restaurants. Okay, my government's not going too well, but look what's happening in the neighboring county. Look what's happening in the neighboring city. So you do have that intergovernmental competition uh, and there are uh, there are options. You know, Bob, you were thinking the whole thing sounds sort of hopeless up until the, up until the end of the book. And uh, I don't know, maybe, um, I guess I wasn't even thinking about that tone as I was writing the book. So uh, it might be hard to tell, but actually I'm an optimist. I think things are going to get better in the future. I'm optimistic, but I also think they're not going to automatically get better in the future. I think that, that our freedoms, that our rights, that our autonomy, that the productivity of our economy, those are things we have to actively work to, to protect. And I think myself as an academic, I mean, if part of my motivation is, that's what I want to do. Those are the ideas I want to impart to my students. If I'm writing something, those are the kind of ideas that I, that I want to impart to my readers because I am optimistic. But at the same time, I see that those values that have enabled us to prosper so much since the Enlightenment, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, they're under fire. They're going to continue to be under fire. And so I'm an optimist that we can protect them, but I also think they need continual protection. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Mike made some comments about, about the policy space that we're looking at. And I think that there's a lot to what he said about the fact that, that the political institutions 
really collapse a multidimensional issue space into a single left-right dimension. So we have policy preferences, multidimensional policy preferences, but we really don't have multidimensional uh, choices. And that's especially true in uh, a winner-take-all type democracy like we have. I mean, you can pick A or you can pick B, but you you can't pick any place uh, in the policy space. And at the same time, you know, I, I think that, that what people are choosing there is, is aspirations rather than policies. That candidates aren't selling policies. They're trying to sell aspirations. Uh, they want you, they want you to feel good about what they're talking about. Uh, and they don't necessarily want to give you any specifics or talk about, you know, if I'm elected, here are the specific things I'll do. What they say is if I'm elected, I'll make things better. And I have to say, let me let me just pass along an anecdote. These go, this goes from way back when I was in college. And uh, Hubert Humphrey, the first, not the one we already talked about, Hubert Humphrey was uh, running for president. Uh, this would have been, I think, in the, in the 72 election. He wasn't the party's nominee. Uh, and Hubert Humphrey, some uh, it's been long enough ago, people might not know. He was a senator from Minnesota. He was vice president under Lyndon Johnson. Running for president, I went to hear him speak. Uh, I was at the University of Florida as an undergraduate student at the time. I went to hear him speak in this big auditorium. He comes on stage. The crowd is booing him. There's all this racket. I thought he wasn't going to be able to start talking, but he managed to quiet the crowd down. You know, he said, uh, he said, hear what I say before you make up your mind. And if you don't like what I have to say, yes, you should boo me. But wait till you hear what I say before you make up your mind. He gave a brilliant speech. And it was all this feel-good stuff. Uh, and I remember I was an economics major. And I remember his prescription about the economy. You know, uh, so Humphrey is saying, the economy is like an eight-cylinder automobile that's only running on six cylinders. We've got to get those other two cylinders running again. Yeah, the crowd went wild. They loved it. You know, this guy has such economic insight. Let's get those other two cylinders running again. You know, but my point is, you know, these political campaigns, they're feel good messages. Vote for me. You'll feel good. They're not specific, uh, um, uh, not specific policy proposals. And, uh, and finally, uh, you know, I, I will comment, you know, Mike talked about the prohibition example, uh, Brexit, and those are pretty interesting cases. And I think, you know, might deserve a little more scrutiny, but it's entirely possible those were expressive votes. And that, you know, if, uh, if, if people have the choices to make on their own, uh, those decisions might not have been made. So I think there's probably, Potentially good examples that help to illustrate the impact of, uh, of expressive voting and people following their leaders. Uh, again, thank you very much to the three of you for your comments. I really appreciate them all. Chris, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of the ideas. So I'll close my comments there. Well, thank you, Randy. And congratulations again on the, on the book. And thanks to all the panelists um, for, for doing this. You know, Randy, this book in conjunction, I think, with the this series of books you've been writing, so the last two, Coordination, Cooperation, and Control and Political Capitalism, together really, among other things, being they're, they're valuable in themselves, but also I think show the vibrancy of, of the public choice research program and, and the wonderful set of ideas that are continually being developed, but also the real world applications to, to human well-being. And so thank you all very much. Uh, I appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.